This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Now, I think the first thing that's probably worth saying is that America is a country that is a profoundly urban place filled with people who think that they're yeoman farmers, right? And it, it is an amazing thing. You particularly feel this in California that, you know, let's say we went 120 miles north and went into some Los Angeles neighborhood of someone living in a single-family detached house with some palm trees out front. That person, despite the fact that they live in one of the world's great metropolises, despite the fact that they live a life that is incredibly urban by any reasonable definition, they will still think of themselves as somehow or other being non-urban, and that's, that's urban stuff that's Detroit. That's something very far from where, from where I, I am. So let me push back a little bit on that and, and just remind you that, you know, we are all urbanites in this room. This is a, this is a you know, one of the world's great metropolises, and um, there's, no, there's no avoiding that fact. Now, let me start with a portrait of America. And what I've done here is I've taken the 3,000-odd counties in the United States, and I've ordered them on the basis of their density levels. Because at their heart, cities are the absence of physical space between people. Cities are density, proximity, closeness. What the bottom line shows is the relationship between density and median household income. The densest half, the densest tenth of America's counties have incomes that are on average 50% higher than the least dense half of America's counties. Now, a lot of things go into this, right? Some of this is presumably selection. Certainly people who live in New York like to think that they're just innately smarter. Um, some of it has to do with greater investment in physical capital in those cities. But by this point in time, a vast literature has really made the case that this is also about a treatment effect of density, that in fact we do become more productive when we are surrounded by a maelstrom of, ac- of economic ta- activity, people for us to work with, to learn from, to sell to, to buy from. Um, and that shows up in, in higher incomes. Now, the top line may be somewhat more surprising. This is the relationship between density as of the year 2000 and population growth between 2000 and 2010. So what you can see there is that almost uniformly, as the counties get denser, they added population at a greater rate. So whereas Americans at the start of the 19th century were leaving their dense enclaves on the eastern seaboard to populate the empty spaces between the oceans, at the start of the 21st century, instead of spreading out, we're clustering in. This is exactly the same two lines for the European Union. In this case, it's not counties. It's the so-called nuts three regions, but you can think of them as counties. Um, The blue line again shows per capita GDP. The relationship actually between income and density is stronger in Europe than it is in the U.S. The densest tenth are about twice as wealthy as the least dense areas. The red line shows the weaker relationship between population growth and density, but again, it is also positive. One way to think about this is just Europeans move much less than Americans do, and that's why the population growth relationship is weaker. I am most concerned, if I think about America's pressing social problems, there's no problem that disturbs me more than prime-age male joblessness. We went from a world where I was born 50 years ago in which 1 in 20 prime-age males were without jobs. Today, that number is around 15%, and it it was even higher than that uh, at a certain point. I think the various attempts of Silicon Valley visionaries to do something like a guaranteed basic income misses the point that, in fact, joblessness is a lot worse than being poor. Joblessness is about desperation. It's about not having a purpose. And every piece of data we have on unhappiness, on suicide, on opioid abuse points out that it's joblessness, not a little bit of extra income that makes the difference. And 
if we don't solve this problem, we have a very bleak future for America. But one thing you may notice is the red line is metro America, the blue line is rural America. Whereas in in the 1970s, those lines were almost on top of each other. Today, a very wide gap has opened up. And I think if we think about where we're going to find jobs for less skilled Americans, it is far more likely to be in service sectors and cities than it is in dispersed rural industries of, of whatever form. Now, whatever is happening in cities in the developed world is completely overshadowed by the incredible revolution of urbanization that is happening in the developing world. The United Nations tells us that we have allegedly became an urban species in 2007, where we crossed the halfway point where more than 50% of humanity lives in cities. The UN's data is, of course, debatable, and even this data that I'm about to show you has, you know, there are suspicious things about it. But what I've done here is I've taken the countries in the world and I've binned them by income levels in 1960 and today, correcting for inflation. So each one of these bars refers to a set of countries with incomes, let's say, between four and 5,000, between three and 4,000, and so forth. Then what the bar shows you is the share of countries in that income bracket that is more than one-third urban. The one-third urban is, in fact, a relatively arbitrary distinction, right? But it gives you a sense that the places become reasonably urbanized. Um, what you see there is if you look to the four to 5,000, we look over here, right? About 80% of these countries are more than one-third urban in 1960. About 80% of those countries are more than one-third urban today. You know, if anything, three to 4,000, the share being more than one-third urban has gone slightly down. But go down to the poorer countries. Go down to those countries with between one and $2,000 per capita GDP or, or less than 1,000. What share of countries with less than $1,000 per capita GDP was more than one-third urban in 1960? It's an easy number to remember. Zero. Not a one. There was no country that, that poor that was more than one-third urban in 1960. Today, that number is over 40% of these countries are more than one-third urban. Go to one to 2,000, you have a jump between 20% being more than one-third urban to 60% being more than one-third urban. And so we see the rise of megacities like Kinshasa and Karachi in places that are both poor and poorly governed. And it is not that there is not promise in this. I know of no pathway out of poverty into prosperity that does not run through city streets. But there are also demons that come with density, contagious disease, crime, high housing costs, congestion. And these cities of the developing world must deal with these demons with a remarkable paucity of resources. And in some sense, figuring out how to deal with those developing world cities is one of the great vocations of the 21st century. Now, whenever I end up talking to policy leaders in the developing world, I always have this sort of surreal conversation, which goes something like this. Great, you're an expert on cities. Tell me how I stop all these poor people from coming to my city and screwing it up. Okay? That's the ubiquitous uh, uh, thing I get. Now, um, that's not the right answer. The right answer is, you know, not to to try and and stop urbanization. The right answer is not to subsidize it either. But, you know, when you look at, at countries that are more than 50% urbanized and countries that are less than 50% urbanized. The more urbanized countries have on average incomes that are five times higher and infant mortality levels that are less than a third. This is the relationship between urbanization in 1960 and ex-post growth rates, growth rates between 1960 and 2010, okay? Um, Just among those countries with per capita incomes below $5,000. Now, there are lots of reasons why you wouldn't want to read a strong causal relationship in this. There are lots of things going on in this graph. But when I look at something like this, which shows such a strong relationship between urbanization and subsequent growth, I can't possibly think the right answer is to artificially stymie the growth, of, the growth of cities. The right answer is to figure out how to make those cities more livable. Now, we have just been through this amazing housing market tsunami 
in the U.S. And this is one way of looking at this tsunami. What I've got along the x-axis is the change in prices between 2001 and 2006 using the Federal Housing Finance Agency repeat sales index. What I have along the y-axis, along the vertical axis, is the change in prices between 2006 and 2011. Now, mean reversion in housing prices is normal. My own estimates are, if you take the entire 1975 period onward, for every dollar a metropolitan area goes up over five years, it goes down by 32 cents over the next five years. So mean reversion is quite standard. Some, some sense, if it goes up, you know, it's then going to go down. So past performance is certainly not a guarantee of future performance in, in real estate. But this isn't 32% mean reversion. This is 95% mean reversion. The, the great housing boom was just a you know, storm that came in and left, you know, leaving great wreckage for the whole financial system in its wake. Um, now, there are a couple of other things I want to point out in this. One, of course, is the enormous variation across America. Right? There are some places like Houston up there where, you know, Houston, where they basically didn't move. And it's exactly as you would expect a market like Houston to look like. Houston is like much of interior America, right, is a place in which they have an enormous amount of land. The place is flat. There are no real regulatory barriers to, to permitting. Consequently, the supply of housing is essentially elastic. You can build as much of it at, eight, at 80 bucks a square foot as you want, right? And so when demand goes up, they just build more housing. And the work that I've done trying to look at real estate bubbles across history in the U.S. points out that the mistake that people have made over and over again is to underestimate the power of elastic supply to fit the market, to to determine prices. Now, that will not be important in San Diego or in much of coastal California because you are so far from a world of elastic supply that you need not worry about that. But uh, I will return to that later. Not all of that is good. But in fact, in places like Houston, which is much of America, this elastic supply, this easy, unconstrained supply is the right world. Next thing I want to point out is a couple of outliers. Now, Detroit, of course, is the one city that managed to miss the boom and still experience the bust. Um, the, the travails of Detroit will be an ongoing theme of this, this talk. Um, and then there are cities that are outliers. So Phoenix and Las Vegas were the cities where they actually, they're not San Diego. They're not San Francisco. They are actually fairly unconstrained. And yet people forgot that for three short years. And prices skyrocketed. And of course, at the same time, they were building massive amounts of homes. And unsurprisingly, there was a correction. Um, and it was, the correction was big. But then there were other cities, New York and D.C., San Francisco would be up there as well, where their price stability, their price resilience was extraordinary. And that is a general fact. If I look at the entire 1996 to 2012 period, what you see is that the densest fifth of America's metropolitan areas did much, much better through this great tsunami than the least dense four-fifths. And this is, I've just ordered the metropolitan areas by density. And as you can see, much more price growth in the densest areas. This is within cities. So if this is by distance to CBD, distance to the central business district using Zillow subsidy data, again, over the same time period, 97 to 2015, the prices at the city center have done much better than the prices at the city edge. Um, and, you know, my wife always says, well, if you knew that, Ed, why the heck did we buy in the suburbs 12 years ago? Uh, but we did. Uh, now, this and, you know, this reflects a combination of urban economic dynamism and also people actually just wanting to experience urban pleasures just wanting to actually live in the, center, in the center of a city. Now, this rosy picture of cities is very different from the New York City of my youth, right? I was born in Manhattan in 1967, and these were two iconic images from New York City in, in the 1970s. Um, Ford did not actually say drop dead. Uh, that was the Daily News that made that, that famous headline up. But, you know, in those years, it didn't just seem as if President Ford it was turning down New York's request for a bailout down, but it felt like history itself was telling New York to drop dead. 
the city had been shedding hundreds of thousands of manufacturing jobs over a very short time period. It's easy to forget now, but the largest industrial cluster in the United States in the 1950s was not automobile production in Detroit. It was garment production in New York City. And that industrial cluster was clobbered by globalization in a first in a short number of years. On top of economic dislocation, there were social distress, massively increasing crime rates, all of the bad stuff that we associate with, with cities was going on there. And there was a city government that was, could not pay its bills, right? that was faced with declining revenues and increasing costs. And so they came hat in hand to the president of the United States and got turned down. And it really looked in the 1970s. And it's not just Detroit, right? Boston looked as bad as Buffalo, right? Philadelphia and Detroit. Seattle was a disaster. I'll come back to that, that later. Right? It really looked as if the time of the urban world had come and gone, that we would be looking forward to a future, and you can see Jimmy Carter wandering through the wasteland that the South Bronx had become, in which the weeds would rise up from the ground and reclaim the once proud towers that had made our, our cities shimmer. Now, one of the reasons why the future of cities seems so grim is that all of America's older, colder cities had come about to solve a transportation problem. So let's go back to 1816, right? Americans sat on the edge of a vastly wealthy continent that was virtually inaccessible. It cost as much to ship goods 30 miles over land as it did to ship them across the entire Atlantic Ocean. No wonder in 1816 we, we sat clinging to our Atlantic lifeline. And then over the course of the 19th century, we built this amazing transportation network. First and most importantly, canals, the waterways, and then the railroads that supplemented the canals. And cities grew up on pinch points of that transportation network, right? Buffalo, the western terminus of the Erie Canal, the place where Joseph Dart's pioneering elevators lifted the grain that was coming on the Great Lakes onto the flatboats that would travel along the Erie Canal, right? Chicago, the linchpin of a great watery arc that went from all the way from New York to New Orleans, a place where the real estate market went insane in the 1830s when it was announced that the Illinois and Michigan Canal would link the Great Lakes system with the Mississippi River system. Um, and, of course, these places were built on transportation. Every one of the 20 largest cities in the U.S. in 1900 was on a major waterway, from the oldest, New York and Boston, typically where the river meets the sea, to the newest, Minneapolis, on the northernmost navigable point on the Mississippi River. And industries, of course, flocked around those transportation advantages. Um, there are many different examples of those. One of the, perhaps the most obvious ones is Chicago stockyards. And you can see that they're close to the rail lines. And the stockyards in Chicago are part of a classic American problem, which is moving corn. America then, as now, has a tremendous compa comparative advantage in growing corn or wheat. The problem with corn, of course, is that it is, has a very low value per ton. So in order to ship it over huge distances, you needed to transform it into something. In the 1790s, the farmers of western Pennsylvania transformed it into that portable and potable product of whiskey and got involved in a little bit of violence with George Washington when they didn't want to pay the taxes on it. Right? In the 1820s, the farmers of the Ohio River Valley transformed it into salted pork. You know, pigs, after all, are corn with feet. Uh, and for whatever reason, in a pre-refrigeration era, humans have always been fonder of salted pork products than salted beef products, right? Go to any grocery store and you'll find a vast proliferation of sausages, ham, bacon, and so forth, and maybe a little bit of brazala corned beef to, to compensate. The big transformation with cows came with refrigerated rail cars, and that's what this guy is associated with. Armour is the great meat packer whose company figured out how to refrigerate beef for the long voyage to the east. So you could slaughter the beef in Chicago, you could ship it to the, to the east, and since the ice was on top of the cows dripping down, it would keep the beef cold, keep the beef sanitary. Um, and so a great industry grew up around these transportation networks. 
Now, everything that I've said so far makes it sound as if cities are part of solving an operations research problem, figuring out how to minimize the cost of transportation in order to you know, get the most out of the country, like some whiz kid at the Pentagon could have figured out exactly where to put this stuff. This stuff. Now, part of that's true, but it's only a small part of what cities do that is magical. Right? Much of what is important in cities are the unplanned chains of collaborative creativity that have been responsible for humanity's greatest hits since you know, Plato and, and Socrates bickered on an Athenian street corner. We see this in the arts in Renaissance Florence, where a chain of genius starts with Brunelleschi's understanding of linear perspective, how to make three-dimensional spaces appear on two-dimensional spaces. He passes it along to Donatello, who puts it in low-relief sculpture on the wall of Orson Michele, who passes it along to Masaccio. Right, who puts it in, in the Brancacci Chapel, this marvelous painting of St. Peter finding a silver coin in the belly of a fish, passes it along to Botticelli, passes it along to Fra Filippo Lippi, and so forth, a chain of genius, each person riffing on each other's new ideas. This is what cities do that matters. In the 1880s in Chicago, it was the invention of the skyscraper. Right? The first skyscraper is, is allegedly uh, William and Byron Jenny's home insurance building, but, you know, the architectural historians debate this very widely because, in fact, only the front two walls are really skyscraper walls. And by skyscraper, of course, I mean a tall building carried up by a load-bearing steel or cast iron skeleton. Right? The back two walls were traditional thick masonry walls. And so there is a debate whether or not Jenny deserves the sobriquet, the father of the skyscraper, whether or not it belongs to Daniel Burnham or Peter B. White, the great fireproofing engineer, or Adler or Root. But I submit to you that any attempt to find a single parent for the skyscraper is a fool's errand. Because the skyscraper, like pretty much everything else our species has done that's worth a darn, right, is a collaborative invention. These guys all knew each other. Both Burnham and Sullivan were apprentices in Jenny's office. They all stole ideas from each other rampantly. Right? This is what we do. We are intellectual magpies. We're constantly borrowing ideas from people around us. That's what makes us effective. Right? And collectively, Chicago made this innovation happen. Just as Detroit made the cheap car happen. Now, of course, Americans did not invent the car, uh, unlike certain things you may have heard from President Obama when we were trying to bail out the auto industry. Uh, the Germans really deserve credit for the internal combustion engine. But we did make it cheap. And Detroit in the 1890s was a place as entrepreneurial as Silicon Valley in the 1960s. It was a place that was crammed with automotive geniuses. Henry Ford is perhaps the one that's most famous. And Ford, of course, comes to Detroit because it's an inland port specializing in vessels that travel on the Great Lakes. And he learns about engines working for Detroit Dry Dock. He then takes that expertise, works for Thomas Alva Edison, and then joins in this race, along with David Dunbar Buick, the, the Fisher brothers, the Olds brothers, right? Uh, uh, Billy Durant and nearby Flint. Each of these people, again, stealing ideas from each other, supplying each other with parts, with financing. And collectively, they made this magical thing happen. Right? Now, the problem is the way that they made it happen was a way that was deeply inimical to urban form. This is an image of Ford's River Rouge plant, a vast vertically integrated plant walled off from the outside world, a place that is unbelievably productive in the short run, right? created $5 days for ordinary Americans, provided mobility for farmers far flung throughout the country, right? made Detroit perhaps the most productive place on the planet, and while they were doing it, they helped America win World War II. Right? All of these things came out of the incredible efficiencies of mass production. But successful cities in the start of the 19th century, like successful cities at the start of the 21st century, are marked by three things. Smart people, small firms, and access to the outside world. How different from that is Ford's River Rouge? And when transportation costs change, and this is the decline in the cost of moving a ton of mile by rail over the 20th century, when transportation costs change, it no longer became sensible to put factories in Detroit. Right? In 1910, perfectly good place to put a factory. By 1960, it made no more sense. 
You move to lower cost locales, places with cheaper labor, places with access to highways, right? And so after World War II, you had this tremendous dispersal of manufacturing employment, first within the United States and then across the oceans. Now, one way of thinking about this is what declining transportation costs did is they freed people up from being in places where firms had a productive advantage, perhaps because of access to the coal mines outside of Pittsburgh, to places where people want to live. And I don't need to tell you the importance of that. We're in San Diego, right, which is a quintessential consumer city by any definition. This is a place that came about slightly because of the port, but far more so because it is a glorious place to live, right? And what we've learned from the last 100 years is that there is no variable that predicts metropolitan area population growth in the United States more successfully than January temperature, right? Every decade, decade by decade, it continues to work. This is the 2000s, right? But I could show you this for any decade except for the 1930s, and it would come out strongly. And it's true in most of the developed world as well. It's actually not true in hyper-poor countries. Um, and there are lots of things going on here. Some part of it is that warmer places after World War II had stronger pro-business policies. So the work of Tom Holmes compares counties on pro-business right-to-work states with neighboring counties in non-right-to-work states with pro-union states. Huge difference in industrial growth in the pro-business states as opposed to the pro-union states. Right? It's also about mass-producing housing. You don't understand why Atlanta, Dallas, Houston, and Phoenix each added a million people between 2000 and 2010 without understanding that they make it very easy to mass-produce housing. But of course, let's face it, you know, Yesterday, when I left my home, it was 19 degrees, okay? And here it's not. Uh, and that, that has something to do with it. Now, I may think as a New Englander that it shows an awful lack of character of America, that we actually like things that are, are like paradise as opposed to like things that are, are a freezing hell. But, uh, <laughs> but there it is. This is the same graph for Europe. Okay. Along with the move to sun was the move to sprawl. We have always built are uh, cities around the, the transportation technologies that were dominant in the era in which they were built, right? Our oldest cities are pedestrian cities with short blocks and narrow streets, often wind. Grids are more associated with wheeled vehicles. So the, the New York's 1811 grid becomes more valuable when you have large wheeled vehicles like the omnibuses that would come in in the 1820s. Then you had streetcar suburbs built around streetcars, obviously. Uh, the L enabled further uh, disbursement of people. And in the 20th century, we had the car, right? And we massively rebuilt our spaces around the automobile. San Diego is a city that is, of course, almost entirely built around the car, primarily. Um, And that's not surprising. The average commute by car in this country is 23 minutes. The average commute by public transportation is 46 minutes, right? So it's not particularly surprising that Americans chose to move towards car-based living. It is worthwhile stressing that the cars are fundamentally different from all of these older forms of transportation because all of the other ones were, in some sense, hub and spoke. You actually had to walk from your subway stop. You had to walk from your streetcar stop, and so they kept it denser. Cars are point to point, and so they, so they both require and enable vast amounts of consumption of, of real estate. That's true outside the U.S. as well. Now, hit with the move to sun and sprawl, the older cities tried to reinvent themselves in a variety of different ways, and they also often made a terrible mistake of following a Potemkin village strategy of confusing the real city, which is always the humanity, the human capital, that resides in the city for the physical capital, for the adornments of physical objects. In the 50s and 60s, the federal government followed this Potemkin village by trying, strategy by trying to build urban renewal projects in our older, colder cities. Right? Detroit, more than 90% of the homes in Detroit in 1980 were priced significantly below construction costs. 
right? If they fell down, no one in their right mind would have paid to rebuild them. The last thing they needed was more construction of, of housing units. And the last thing they needed was a monorail to glide over essentially empty streets, which Detroit had thanks to the Federal Highway Aid Act of 1973 because some clever clocks in, in the Ford administration decided that, you know, since Disney World had one, that's what America's cities needed as well, right? Now, this is a demented thing because, you know, this is a city built for 1.85 million that now has less than half than that amount. You can run a bus at any speed down the streets of Detroit that you want, right? The last thing you need is a monorail to supplement that by going, by going above it. And yet, this is what they got. What they needed was investment in their children. What they needed was safer streets. But they got a monorail. Okay, this is what happened to the 10 largest cities in the U.S. in 1950. Few, many of them are not even thought of as urban giants anymore. Right? But these were the 10 largest cities in the U.S. Eight of them have lost at least 20% of their population uh, between 1950 and 2010. L.A. is, of course, substantially different along every dimension. New York has proven remarkably stable. Some of these cities, the cities that are in the 20% loss uh, category, are actually doing quite well. They're down because their apartments, which used to house six people, now house two. Right? So they have fewer people, but they're actually still thriving. And some of them, like Cleveland, Detroit, St. Louis, right, are... Uh, you know, shells of their former selves, 50% or less of their, their population. Now, this would be a very depressing story if I ended it now, uh, but that's not the end of the story. And what has happened since the 1970s has been a remarkable resurgence of urban America in lots of different ways. Um, it's easy to forget now, but in 1971, two jokers put up a billboard on, on the highway that leaves Seattle asking the last person to leave the city to please turn out the lights. Because Boeing had been cutting back on its jobs, and just as no one could imagine uh, Detroit with a smaller General Motors, no one could imagine a Seattle with a smaller, without, with a smaller Boeing. This is before Amazon, before Costco, before Starbucks, before Microsoft, right? All of these new companies, never imagined in 1971, came back and boosted Seattle's strength. Um, now, there's a common factor that lies behind Seattle's resurgence, and it's the same factor that lies behind the resurgence of many cities. In New York, finance plays an outsized role, and finance can be interpreted in many different ways. It can be interpreted as a chain of innovation that starts with a more sophisticated ability to trade off risk and return that's developed at the University of Chicago in the 1950s, that's then carried to Wall Street. Um, by people like the young Jack Traynor, the young Fisher Black. That sophisticated approach to risk and return then enables um, the young Michael Milken to sell high-yield high debt junk bonds, if you will, uh, to uh, finance larger and larger LBOs, which are used by the young Henry Kravis. Lou Ranieri and the securitization revolution is part of this. The reason why I always like mentioning Lou Ranieri is you've got to start in the Solomon Brothers mailroom, which reminds us of the remarkable capacity of cities to be forges of human capital. You know, when people come to cities, they don't experience a 30% wage burst overnight. What they experience year by year, month by month, uh, is faster wage growth. That's a fact, by the way, that I discovered 25 years ago, and I discovered it when I started refereeing a paper written by a very great UCSD economist, Jim Rausch. Uh, so uh, but they experience faster wage growth, and that faster wage growth is specifically associated with, with learning more in cities, becoming more skilled in cities, and Lou Ranieri is an example of that. Bloomberg is part of this revolution as well. Bloomberg's terminals are part of a more quantitative approach to finance. And I, that's one of the reasons why Bloomberg's there. The second reason is he's an example of cross-industry leaps of imagination. Bloomberg is not a financial billionaire, right? He's an information technology billionaire. In some sense, he's competing with the guys in San Jose. But he's able to compete so effectively with them because he has run the Solomon Brothers trading floor, because he has run their tech operation, and he knows what the guys at Merrill Lynch want on their desks when he starts his own company in 1982. No Silicon Valley software engineer knows that. And so the city has made him wise in ways that he can capitalize enormously. 
There's another reason I like this, though, which is the Wallace office which is based on the Wallace office at Bloomberg LLP, which is based on the Solomon Brothers trading floor. Now, there's something funny about trading floors when you think about it. Here we have some of the wealthiest people on the planet who, in a normal industry, would sit in scots like university deans in, in vast offices, protected by, no offense, of course, but, uh, <laughs> protected by vast, uh, vast desks with executive assistants enjoying all the perquisites of privacy that their wealth has made possible. And, and here they are, you know, they're right next to each other, they're sweating on each other. If Michael Lewis is to be, be believe they're getting guacamole on each other with some degree of regularity, right? The whole thing's a mess. Why are they there? Why are they putting up with all of that painful proximity? Well, they're there, of course, because in their industry, knowledge is more important than space, right? And this is why cities have come back fundamentally, is because knowledge has become more important than space. And whereas the cyber seers and the techno-profits of the 1980s predicted that all of this new technology would just disperse us to electronic cottages, what has happened instead is that what globalization and new technologies have done is that they have radically increased the returns to being smart. And we are a social species that gets smart by being around other smart people. This is what cities do that really matters. And this is why cities have become more, you know, more important over time. You know, uh, the more complicated the world is, the easier it is for ideas to get lost in translation. Right? Face-to-face contact is so valuable in this. Anyone who's ever taught knows the hard part about teaching is not knowing your subject material. It's knowing whether or not anything you're saying is getting through. We have evolved over millions of years to have these wonderful cues for communicating comprehension or confusion that are lost when we're not in the same room with one another. Right? Face-to-face contact makes that possible. Cities enable that face-to-face contact. This is why, right, of all the industries in all the world that should be able to disperse their workers and say, just dial it in, right, it's Silicon Valley. And yet it is now the most famous example of an industrial cluster, of a spatial cluster in the world today. This is why Google, which, you know, certainly if there's a company that should be able to tell its workers go home and work virtually, it should be able to do it. Is that what it does? No. It buys the Googleplex, right? It buys a million and a half square feet in downtown Manhattan. It pulls its workers right on top of each other because they become more creative by learning from each other, by being right next to each other. Now, of course, there is you know, a secret sauce to this. It's education. It's human capital. Right? This is the relationship between per capita GDP across America's metropolitan areas and the share of adults with a college degree. Right? First thing to know is just the enormous gulf in America. So down here in Bakersfield, right, per capita incomes are in the 30s. Per capita GDP is in the 30s. San Jose, it's close to 100. San Francisco, which is, is 70. So two to one within the U.S. But it lines up remarkably well with human capital. Right? Education is the strength uh, on which individual success, city success, national success uh, lasts. Um, This is the relationship between population growth between 2000 and 2010 and share of the population with a college degree. This is across counties. So again, much faster growth in those areas that are better educated as well. And this is one of those pervasive facts of urban success over the past 60 years. True in terms of housing prices, true in terms of incomes, true in terms of population growth. Education, human capital is the stuff that really matters. Uh, And in many cases, urban innovation seem to be making cities stronger. So this is Zipcar, you know, Uber, variety of different things which seem to play to density's advantages. One way of thinking about this, right, is that, that Zipcar bills itself as being a harboring of the sharing economy. Airbnb does as well, right? Um, Uber, in some sense, is partially about sharing as well. Now, cities have always been about sharing. 
What is an urban restaurant but a, a shared dining room, a shared kitchen? What is an urban park but a shared backyard? What technology has done is that it's made it possible for us to share more stuff. So why didn't you have Zipcar in New York in the 1970s when I was a kid? Well, you'd go to Times Square, right, to pick up your car, and there'd be like a dead body in the trunk, right? And it would be really unpleasant because you'd have to get the NYPD involved, and then you'd have to be answering questions for a very long period of time, right? Now, there's no dead body in the trunk because the technology makes it work, right? And that's, that's one of the things that technology is doing. Now, while uh, I like to vaunt the advantages of the stuff we teach at places like UCSD, um, it would be false not to suggest that the most important skills that are learned in the city are the, learn- are the skills that are learned outside of the classroom, are the skills that are learned at work, by networking, by conversations, by all sorts of uh, connections that occur. When I think of those things that are not generally taught, although goodness knows entrepreneurship professors try to pretend that they know how to teach entrepreneurship, um, there's, there's no skill that's more valuable for the long-run resilience of a city than the talent and inclination to be an entrepreneur, to start up a new business. The economist Ben Chinitz was comparing New York and Pittsburgh in the 1950s and noting that New York appeared to be more resilient than Pittsburgh did even then. He argued that this was a reflection of a culture of entrepreneurship in New York, which was itself the child of New York's garment industry. Right? So the garment industry in New York was an industry with very weak returns to scale. Right? Anyone with a couple of sewing machines and a good idea could get started. And so it was a mother of entrepreneurship. And the thing is about entrepreneurial human capital is it's fungible. If you're good at thinking about new ideas for kids' clothing, you're good at thinking of new ideas in other areas. You're good at thinking about new opportunities. And so the people who started in the garment industry went on to build skyscrapers, went on to open banks, went on to build movie studios, right? um, because they had learned how to be an entrepreneur, either on their own or at the breakfast table from a parent. Um, Pittsburgh, by contrast, right, had U.S. Steel. And U.S. Steel trained company men, right? And those company men were fantastic at the short-run logistics, but were terrible at figuring out new ways to reinvent their city. Um, Now, uh, it is remarkable, given how mediocre our measures of entrepreneurship are, that they are so powerful at predicting economic growth. So the two most common measures are the share of employment in startups initially or just average establishment size. So this is average establishment size in 1977 and subsequent employment growth. And what you can see is that there is vastly higher employment growth in those metropolitan areas with the smallest average establishment sizes relative to those metropolitan areas with the largest establishment sizes. This is a very well-documented fact. It is true within metropolitan areas across sectors. It is true within, within industries. It's true if you just look at um, export industries and finance and trade. It's true if you use the presence of coal mines in 1900 as a source of variation, because having lots of mines meant you had bigger companies, bigger companies and industries apart from mining, and those areas did poorly as well. So lots of different evidence suggesting that entrepreneurship is really a critical element in the human capital of a city. Now, while uh, entrepreneurship is almost as American and almost as beloved as mother pie, uh, as motherhood and apple pie, it's not one in which it's obvious to know what governments can do about it. So this is Boston's Innovation District, which was an attempt to bring in more entrepreneurs into, into Boston in the tech sector. Um, it worked very well as a real estate play, actually. Lots of demand for those shiny towers on the, on the, the waterfront. Um, however, it turned out that banks were able to pay the rents more than entrepreneurs were. So the entrepreneurs moved to che- cheaper areas. Um, But we do know one thing which is sensible, which is to rethink the local regulations that stymie entrepreneurship. And one of the things that is really frustrating in America is that we regulate rich person entrepreneurship so much more lightly than we regulate poor person entrepreneurship. That, in fact, if you want to get started with your multi-billion person internet startup in Silicon Valley or in Kindle Square, right, go ahead. No one's going to stand in your way. If you want to start a bodega that sells milk products, you've got 17 permits to go through to to get there, right? This is an outrage. And it particularly shows up in places like Detroit. Now, one of my personal pet causes was freeing the food truck, 
from you know excess regulation. Now, I've, I've eaten at food trucks outside of my office for the last 26 years, so I feel like I owe this industry a little bit back. Uh, and uh, so I've written a number of columns on freeing the food truck. And I was, in, I was involved in an NPR uh, radio show on this poor woman, the Pink Flamingo, uh, who had been trying to start a food truck in Detroit for 18 months and couldn't get past their regulatory hurdles to open a food truck. Now, um, uh, the idea that Detroit is saying no to any entrepreneur who wants to open in there is crazy, right? So that, that you begin with that. And, uh, you know, this poor woman is just trying to sell some food, which seems perfectly tasty and perfectly hygienic. And, of course, we've got the city ombudsman on the show. And for an hour, this ombudsman is being beaten up. He's being beaten up by her. He's being beaten up by me. He's being beaten up by the, the radio host. He's being beaten up 100%. The callers think that Detroit is being a jerk on this. There's not a single one who, who will say, well, I represent the entrenched restaurants in Detroit, and I would just like to say you're doing a great job at, at preventing competition uh, from new startups for us. No, no one says that. And the great thing is, at the end of the day, the ombudsman really says, well, look, lady, just go ahead and start your food truck. We'll never catch you. Uh, <laughs> now, um, I'm not going to talk a lot about the demons of density, but we're talking mostly about relatively positive things about cities. Um, there are these downsides of density. Some of them have been relatively solved in the U.S., so we don't think about cities as being killing fields in the same way we did 100 years ago, right? That didn't happen easily. America's cities and towns spent as much on water and sewerage at the start of the 20th century as the federal government spent on everything except for the post office and the army, right? It was an incredibly expensive job to get our water systems working. And this is still a challenge when I do my work in, in India and sub-Saharan Africa. Water and water breakages are very central to the work that I do. Congestion is, of course, still with us and will be as long as we don't charge people to drive on crowded public streets. Until we embrace congestion pricing, as Singapore did, we will continue to have that problem. We, of course, have high housing costs that still bedevil us. But we do know that when cities are able to deal with crime, deal with contagious disease, they can be places of tremendous pleasure as well as productivity. Right? And, and we've seen this in lots of different places. This is uh, Barcelona, uh, which is certainly a consumer city uh, par excellence. The downside of having cities that succeed in being both productive and fun is that if you don't build enough housing, they become too expensive. There is no repealing the laws of supply and demand, and one or two so-called affordable housing units are not going to do it, right? Unless you build, the places become too expensive. Now, there are reasons for not building. Um, there are potential downsides from having more construction going on in a variety of different areas. But don't pretend, as Jane Jacobs did, that there's a free lunch here. So Jane Jacobs made the argument in Death and Life of Great American Cities, which is a fantastic book, one of the great classics of, of, of urbanism. But uh, she made this argument. She looked at old buildings and noted that they were cheaper than new buildings, which led her to conclude that the way to preserve affordability into New York was to make sure that nobody built any new buildings on top of old buildings. Okay? Now, this is not how supply and demand works. And you don't have to look any further than her own home area of Greenwich Village, which is marvelous urban space, certainly, and she was absolutely right about that. But the idea that preserving Greenwich Village as a historic preservation district, which she worked so assiduously to do, that preserving that was going to promote affordability is utter nonsense, right? In the 1950s, she was able to live as a middle-income household in Greenwich Village. Today, the kind of townhouses that she was writing about start at $7 million, right? And hedge fund managers or NYU professors are the only people who can actually afford to, to, to live there, right? This is a danger that all cities that restrict face, that they risk becoming boutique towns affordable only to the wealthy. And it's, um, this is the decline in permitting in New York and the rise in prices, right? When, we, when New York built 100,000 units a year, as it did in the early 1920s, the city stayed affordable. Um, now it doesn't do a fraction of that, and the city is incredibly expensive. This is across metropolitan areas. 
Um, this is the amount of permitting. It's a fraction of the original housing stock. And this is the ratio between home prices to mar- the marginal physical cost of construction. Talked about that 80 or 100, uh, $120 a square foot to actually build. So this is the ratio of these things. And, and San Diego's here is one of the high points in terms of the ratio of the value of homes to the physical cost of, of construction. Um, this is what you get from restricting, restricting housing. You get restricting housing production. You get prices that are, are unbelievably high. And um, historically in the U.S., when areas became more productive, we built a lot. People crowded in. People enjoyed the benefits of all that productivity. We no longer do that. Right? We now make it impossible to move to Silicon Valley with things like 60-acre minimum lot sizes in places like Marin County uh, or even in, in the hills outside of uh, Palo Alto. Um, that's maybe the right policy decision, but it sure as heck isn't a free one. It sure as heck is not one that's, that's easy or necessarily progressive in any way. And you know, one of the points I always like making back home is that red state Texas does a heck of a better job of providing affordable housing for middle-income people than blue state Massachusetts does. Right? And they do so by essentially unleashing the developers rather than by going with a little trickle here, a trickle there. My own hometown, maybe five to seven years ago, there's a wonderful headline that all of our state reps were down in the town because we had opened exactly one affordable housing unit, right? As if this was going to do anything for the long-run benefits of these things. I think, and I, I, when I think about the decision of Amazon as to where to locate, I think the areas that are sort of most remarkable in the U.S. and most dynamic are those places that combine a relatively pro-business and pro-housing policy with also being invested in education. Places like Austin, places like Charlotte, places like even, even Atlanta, which is about as educated as, as Boston is. And if, if I were betting on where Amazon would go, I would be betting on one of those places, actually. I would be betting on a place that looks kind of different from Seattle, at least along some dimensions, but still has plenty of skills. Um, But the truth of the matter is that any place that gets Amazon doesn't need Amazon. Uh, uh, I want to end with a last last comment, which is a story about the environment in cities, because cities are often depicted as the enemy of the environment. I think think the opposite is true. I like to make this point by telling a story of a young Harvard College graduate who, on a beautiful spring day in 1844, went for a walk in the woods outside of Concord, Massachusetts. And he did a little fishing, and the fishing was good because there hadn't been much rain Lately. But when he came to cook the fish into a chowder, that's what we do in Massachusetts, we cook chowders, uh, the, uh, the wind flicked the flames to nearby dry grass, and a fire started, and it spread, and it spread, and it spread. And by the time it was done, it was a raging inferno that had destroyed more than 400 acres of prime woodland. In his own day, this young man was castigated as an enemy of the environment. The Concord Freeman, the lo- local paper, called him a flibberty gibbet, which I think was pretty bad for 1844. Um, <laughs> but I think they were right. I mean, it's hard to think of any young man who did as much damage to the environment as this one did in his, in his time era. Um, of course, today, somewhat oddly, he is revered as the secular saint of American environmentalism. His name, of course, is Henry David Thoreau. And his book, Walden, preaches a gospel of what a wonderful thing it is to live surrounded by nature. Well, it may well have been wonderful th- for Thoreau to be surrounded by nature, but it sure as heck wasn't wonderful for nature to have Thoreau I- in it. Uh, and, and I think the lesson here is that, you know, we are a destructive species. And often the best way is to take care of nature is to stay away from it, as indeed Thoreau would have done nature a very good term by staying away from it. Now, this is, I've done work with Matt Kahn, now of USC, measuring carbon emissions associated with different parts of, of the U.S. Um, this is a within metro area slice. And the bottom line is the places that look brown are green and the places that look green are brown. And the reason for this is both driving and uh, just the size of the homes that are involved. And this is holding income and family size constant. I know this personally because when I started acquiring small children about 11 years ago, um, this is what economists do, we acquire small children. Um, I moved from a place here where I lived in a small, a small home and my life was fairly green by any reasonable dimension to a place out here not so far away from Walden Pond where I started doing about as much damage to the environment as Thoreau did, what with the driving and the home heating and all this, and all this other stuff. Um, 
This is not to say, and no part of what I'm saying is meant to suggest that, you know, it is not a great thing that America has different places to live. It is a fantastic thing that, that America has different places to live, right? It's a fantastic thing that we have opportunities for people to live in utter isolation in Montana and in dense enclaves of, of downtown New York, right? Uh, choice is ultimately the economist's great love, and I believe this is true across America and it's true within cities as well. Successful cities are archipelagos of neighborhood, not designed to one specification, but designed to many. Um, and uh, the point is just that we need to have policies that actually get the environmentalism right. And let me make this point finally by taking a swipe at California and the Friends of Mammoth case. Um, so California, as I think all of you must know, for 44-odd years has required environmental impact reviews on large, large projects. The odd thing about these environmental impact reviews from an economist's point of view is that they take into account only the local environmental damage if the project does go through, not the global environmental pro- damage if the project does not go through. Okay, And you need to consider both. Because when a spigot is turned off outside of San Francisco, it is turned on outside of Houston. It is turned on outside of Las Vegas. California's local zoning authorities don't get to determine the rate of household formation in the United States. They just get to determine where it is. Okay, And the point is, the point of this graph is we've estimated carbon emissions associated with living in different parts of the U.S. This is just across metropolitan areas. And what you will notice is that all of the lowest carbon emission places, there you are right there, are in coastal California. This is not coming from your environmental regulations. This is actually coming from your weather. Okay? Overwhelmingly, this is explained, 95% of this is explained by the fact that you have remarkably mild winters and remarkably mild summers. So you do not have to create an artificial climate as they do in Houston in order to, to survive. In many of these areas, you, know, you do, in fact, have relatively short drives um, relative to you know, the uh, Oklahoma cities of the world. Right? Oklahoma City is, is up there, right? an enormously high thing. Now, if you saw data like this, if you believe the carbon emissions were a lot lower in coastal California, then you would think that every California green would be fighting for every new housing project that could possibly be built in coastal California, right? Because each new project means one less outside of Houston. It means one more green project in San Francisco Bay where people can cake BART, where people can live in a smaller unit where they don't have to heat and cool their house. And this is not to say that, that you know, that's always the right answer, but you'd think that that would be the environmentalist mantra. And yet too often it is not. Now there's a bit of a change on this, but in fact it's important in terms of the debates about land use to recognize the right environmental answer is not always saying no. It's often to say yes. Um, let me just end with uh, two points, which is the, you know, if the great growing economies see their per capita carbon emissions rise to those seen in uh, the U.S., global carbon emissions go up by 130%. If they rise to the level seen in hyperdense Hong Kong, global carbon emissions go up by less than 30%, right? If India and China both see that, right? So whether or not you're worried about carbon emissions or worried about this, just the price of gas at the pump, we all have a lot to gain by them building up rather than, rather than building out. Um, I don't want to end on a bleak note, right? The larger point, and this has been true in California's great metropolitan areas for more than a century, right, that I cannot fail but to be optimistic given the track record of ingenuity and innovation, right, and cultural uh, change that has occurred in our cities. Our cities can be bringers of democracy. They can be bringers of magnificent art. They can be bringers of economic change, right? All of these things have been happening in cities for millennia. They're still happening. They do require management. I'll make this point about autonomous vehicles. So autonomous vehicles are often seen as being some great thing for cities, and they do have certainly plenty of potential. But if all we do is we introduce the autonomous vehicles and we don't appropriately congestion charge them, right, we have radically reduced the cost of sitting in traffic. What will this do to the number of people who are willing to sit in traffic? The, the fundamental law of highway traffic, as identified by the economists Gilles Durantin and Matthew Turner, is that vehicle miles traveled increase roughly one for one with highway miles built. If you build the road, they will drive the road. Right? If you provide more autonomous vehicles, they will sit in traffic longer, okay? which means that our, our roads will just get worse. One thing we know from the politics of this is that you cannot 
put a charge on a road that has historically been free, or almost, unless, you're, unless you have quasi-dictatorial powers, but you really can't in, a, in our democracy. But you can put a charge on a new service. You can put a charge on a new highway that no one's experienced. So it is absolutely crucial that if we're going to have congestion pricing, and remember, Singapore has had congestion pricing for 40 years. Right? Since 1975, they're the second densest country in the world, and their roads move because they charge people for the social cost of their action. If we charge people for autonomous vehicles from the beginning, then they'll be used to that, and we can actually manage to get our roads used more efficiently going forward. So let me end here for questions. But I think, again, just, just to restress, right? San Diego is an amazing place. It's, it's not you know, a city of yeoman farmers. It's a city of urbanites who have been doing innovative things for at least a century. Right? And I want to thank all of you for being part of that incredibly innovative ecosystem that is one of, I think, the hopes of America going forward. So let me, let me end there and open for questions. Yes, sir. Good morning. Thanks for a great talk. Uh, My question is regarding the rise of the housing in big cities and the homelessness. Do you have any thoughts how the big cities will deal with these homelessness issues? So uh, 25 years ago, there was, there was a large homelessness literature that came about. And there, were, there were a couple of primary um, strands of, in terms of explaining homelessness. Um, one was focused on events in the housing market, which was both about the difficulty of building cheap housing, but also the elimination of low, low-end housing like single-room occupancy hotels. So the work of Dan O'Flaherty at, at Columbia sort of argues that eliminating those SROs played a role in terms of making homelessness worse. So I do think there's a housing market approach, but I think given where we currently are, in California, it's not an approach that's likely to be very productive, given that, you know, that you're so far from having, the right, having enough homes to do that. The second approach deals with the mental health issues. So the second primary vein behind, behind of explaining homelessness was the deinstitutionalization of so many people in the 70s. Um, that's, uh, you know, that's a secondary uh, issue. I, I, we're obviously not going to go back to the world of the, you know, one flew over the cuckoo's nest and, and, and earlier in the, in the 60s and reinstitutionalized people, and nor should we. Um, you know, there's, a, there's a small but growing literature of you know, people who are advocates for housing first, which favors you know, getting people into the homes before you worry about fixing anything else in their lives versus people who have other interventions. Um, I don't think there's a, you know, I don't think there's a consensus on, on this, but we agree certainly. I think there is a consensus that this is a major problem and that, that you know, it needs more work on this. Thanks. Thank you. So you mentioned universities is very key um, in general and, and with specific examples like Charlotte and Austin. And I think San Diego is another interesting example of a, a world-class institution very rapidly emerging. How, how do we get more success stories like that in your mind and, and how key is that? You know, there's a line of Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan that the right way to create a successful city was to build two world-class universities and wait 50 years. Uh, And certainly the work of Enrico Moretti at Berkeley has shown that having a land-grant college prior to 1940 in your your city has been remarkably associated with subsequent economic success. Boston's land-grant college, of course, is MIT. Uh, which has proven an enormous benefit to the local the local economy. Um, the the I feel a little bit awkward as a employee of a university of, of pushing the the great economic benefits of investing in in universities, uh, but I think it is. Um, I mean, the this, this facts speak for themselves. Uh, I think you just need to ask whether or not this is the right way to invest for the 21st century as it was for the right way to invest in the, in the 20th century. But certainly any place that's got a decent research university has to be focused on getting the most out of that. 
and certainly the university and the city need to come together in ways that are, and it's, it's much more widespread. I was at a university cities conference in Lexington, Kentucky, right, which is also a university city of, of form, and, you know, Fort Collins, uh, Colorado, uh, the Research Triangle in North Carolina. These are all areas in which the, the higher demand for knowledge in the 21st century has made local, local areas much more effective. And there are just a whole lot of issues about how you can, you know, the, the, the clear policy case is, is better cooperation between the city and the university in terms of making them productive. Okay. Sorry okay, to cut we're off done? here, we're done? Okay, uh, but uh, Terry, maybe you and others can come up uh, afterwards with questions. Join me, please, in thanking Ed for a wonderful talk. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.